6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 15 through 18. Here in this passage, it's provocative. He says, Behold, the days will come, saith the Lord, that they it shall no more be said, the Lord liveth who brought up the children out of the land of Egypt. In other words, that's not going to be the remarkable identity. But rather, the Lord liveth who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he hath driven them, and I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. Jeremiah, I'm sure perceived that these words by the Holy Spirit referred to their being regathered from Babylon back to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah, as it turned out. And indeed they did. Under Ezra, they got the authority to go back and rebuild the temple, and under Nehemiah, they got further authority to rebuild the wall, and that becomes a trigger point for Daniel's 70-week prophecy. Terrific. But it's interesting that the Holy Spirit gave Jeremiah words here that go far beyond the return of the Babylonian captivity. Do you ever hear... God being referred to as the God that brought the ch children of Israel back out of Babylon. Is that an identity piece? So I don't believe that this prophecy is fulfilled in their return under Ezra and Nehemiah. Notice what it says. That he'll be known as the he who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north. All invaders came from the north because of the Fertile Crescent. So even the Babylonians, which were really eastward, came, attacked them from the north. But, the, but the, uh, from the land of the north is something else. What's in your newspapers about once a week? Some issue about Soviet Jewry being allowed to emigrate. Isn't that interesting? And from all the lands where he hath driven them, Isaiah 11, 11 says, when I gather them the second time from the outcasts of Judah, from all over the world, where? Back in their land. That's going to be the big event. When is this regathering the first time? After Babylon. When is this regathering the second time? Started May 14th of 1948. That's going on today. That's the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, it may not seem that big to everybody right now, because in, other than some Bible nuts like you and I, most people don't attribute the return of Israel and the establishment in the land. When David Ben-Gurion announced the state of Israel that famous evening, he used the authority out of the book of Ezekiel to name the country. The new, the new home, homeland, the state would be called the state of Israel. But most of us, other than the Bible nuts, don't attribute all the return and the, the, the thing to God's hand. There's going to be an event, an invasion of Israel by the Soviet Union, described in detail in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And if you haven't gotten those tapes, I encourage you to do so, because it's timely, it's near, it's happening soon. The events that were in the way have been removed. I used to give tapes. You can find some of my tapes floating around from 1970, 71, where I got into Ezekiel in those days. And... Uh, 
There's one difference between those days and today. The, the Shah of Iran, I used to say that as long as Iran is pro-West, relax, Ezekiel 38 can't happen. There were five attempts on the Shah's life. When, his, when the Shah of Pahlavi falls, that's the signal. And some 10 years later, I got telephone calls from all over the world from executives at management clubs and stuff that had heard that screwy tape and said, Chuck, where was that again? And uh, because Iran is no longer pro-West and the events that are described in Ezekiel 38 are ready to spring. Could happen tomorrow, could happen six months from now. I'm simply telling you I'm expecting it shortly. Ezekiel 38. And by the way, I'm not one of these guys that believes the rapture has to occur before Ezekiel 38. I do think the rapture has to occur before Daniel 70 week starts, but that's got nothing to do with Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38 can happen this year, next year, anytime. And I believe it will. And it may result in some very, very unusual events for the United States. And you can get those tapes and dig that in, into that yourself. But the Lord, that's going to shock Israel as well as the world in the, into the realization that God is once again dealing with his country, this strange country called Israel. The Lord will be known as it, that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he hath driven them. And I will bring them again into the land which I gave unto their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish them. Afterward will I send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the laps of the rocks. Don't misunderstand. I've heard this passage used in concert with the previous remark. He's shifting back in terms of judgment of Israel. These guys are hunting to find captives to make sure they're all enslaved. How do I know verse 17? For mine eyes are upon all their ways, and that they are not hidden from my face, neither is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. In other words, the hunting and the fishing going on is the professionals of Nebuchadnezzar digging in the rocks and stuff to make sure they're enslaved. We're back to the local immediate idiom of Jeremiah's prophecy here. Verse 18, And first I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double, because they have defiled my land, they have filled mine inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable things. God is upset. Some of you may be bothered by that word double. I always was. I thought God was just and he would mete out proper judgment. Why is he giving it to him double? Big problem. I mean, the more you get into that, the word is Mishnah, it means double, but it actually means ample or full. And the word is an idiom meaning proportionate. It means plenty. They won't be short the full measure. That's really what the word means. It doesn't mean double like twice as much as you're entitled. It's a way, it's, it's, it's idiomatic. And from the Halakha tablet, which was found in the plain of Antioch in Syria, they uncovered the fact that the word Mishnah is used in a way meaning other than twice. It just means full, not short, proportionate. Okay, just a little thing there. So don't let people get you tripped up on word studies. This is difficult language because you're dealing, of course, in the translation. Verse 19, O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction, the nations shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and the things in which there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself, and they are no gods? Therefore, behold, I, I will this once cause them to know and will cause them to know mine hand and my might and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Okay. Again, uh, sort of an appeal to, to image there, but uh, the verses are, of course, uh, 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 on the one hand, messianic. They're, they're analogous to Isaiah chapter 2, the first verse, for four verses, Isaiah 45, Zechariah 8, and similar passages. 
And the word yeda, which is to know, is used three times in that verse 21. Chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is engraved upon the tablet of their heart and upon the horns of your altars, while their children remember their altars and their idols uh, by the green trees upon the high hills. Okay, a lot, <laughs> lot of idioms here. Judah's sin is indelible, and therefore their judgment is inescapable. inescapable. It's interesting to note that God's law was engraved in stone. Their sin is engraved in their heart. And, and, and the, the precision of that engraving is, is, is dramatized by these tools. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with a point of a diamond. You mean that literally written on their heart? Well, no, it's a way of saying it's engraved in their heart. Their hearts are hard, and their hearts have sin written upon them. We're going to talk more about hearts before this is all over. We're going to discover that the heart is the source of all human frailty. And their sins are engraved on their heart. Can engravings be erased? No, we're going to discover in a few more, uh, before the chapter's over, the heart is declared not only sick, but incurably sick. God himself doesn't cure the heart. Nowhere in the scripture you talk about a changed heart, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Very graphic language here about their sin being engraved. I'm fascinated by the point of the diamond. You and I take it for granted. We know that industrial diamonds are the source of something extremely, very, very hard to get something harder than a diamond for a cutting tool. I'm fascinated to find that certified in chapter in Jeremiah 17, verse 1. You would be hard-pressed to find, excuse the pun, a, a cutting tool uh, harder than a diamond. That's why diamonds cut things. Now, there are a couple of technicalities today with some synthetic materials, but primarily diamonds still, for all intents and purposes, are the hardest, therefore the most sharpest cutting tool. In, in surgery, the only thing sharper is a ultraviolet laser. But I don't think that's really fair to judge Jeremiah by not being f familiar with eczema lasers. Okay. Okay. Okay, verse 3. Uh, o my mountain in the field, I will give thy substance and thy treasures to the spoil and the high places for sin throughout all my borders. And thou even thyself shall discontinue from thy heritage that I gave thee. And I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which thou knowest not, for ye have kindled a fire in mine anger, which shall burn forever. You want to dedicate your land to the idols? You got it. You go to the land of the idols. That's, in effect, the underlying thought here. Verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Cursed be the man who trusts flesh. Now, this is kind of interesting. Um, there are three words for man in the Hebrew, geber, adam, and basar. Geber is man as opposed to children and women in battle. Man used there suggests man in, it's in fact, the verb form is, implies to be mighty, to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, to prevail. So man there in the sense of being a man as opposed to woman or child, strong, the word uh, geber. And, and, and that's, uh, I believe, the word that's used here. The second word is Adam, which means man, but it means it in the sense of mankind, right? Okay? Human being. You can have Mr. and Mrs. Adam, if you will. Male and female created he, them. That's said of Adam. 
So don't think it's just Adam and then Eve came out of his side. It ain't that simple. He treated them both. So that's a whole other thing you can get the Genesis to. Basar means where it's translated here, the word flesh really speaks of man, but in the sense of his frailty against, as opposed to God's omnipotence. Okay? So the word geber means man like being strong and valiant, and the word uh, basar means man in the sense of being frail in contrast to God. And the geber and basar are put in contrast in this phrase in this, in this, uh, in this verse, for what it's worth. And you can find these same ideas uh, all the way through. Verse 6, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert and will not see when good, when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in, the, in a salt land and not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh and her leaf shall be green and shall not be anxious in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Now that sounds very familiar to you, and the reason it does is the first three verses in effect of, this, of, the, of the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 1, the first three verses, have a flavor and style very analogous to the verse we just read, verse 8. So that has a familiar ring to you. It's not because of your knowledge of Jeremiah, it's because you probably have sung it a lot as Psalm 1. It's just a, as, a, as an incidental comment. Now, verse 9 is a very, very valuable verse, one you need to mark because it gives you an insight, a piece of theology that you really need to understand. Jeremiah tells it, the Lord tells us through Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things. By the way, you can't find anything more deceitful than a heart. So you guys who have trusted girls or you girls who have trusted guys, don't be surprised. Okay. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it says, and desperately wicked. The, the word there is actually anos. It means beyond cure. It's, it's sick, but it's also specifically sick with a disease that cannot be cured. It is incurable. Instead of the word desperately, which is a strong word, but not as strong as being used there, you might annotate it incurably wicked. Why do I make the point? Because God does not try to cure your heart. Nowhere in the scripture, I don't believe, can you find a passage which says God is going to change your heart. David, when he prays his psalm of repentance in Psalm 51, when he grieves over his sin with Bathsheba, he says, create in me a clean heart. Don't take mine and scrub it. Get rid of it. Create a clean heart in me. And you'll find that idiom throughout the entire scripture. God gives you a new heart a new heart. And you can say, well, that's idiomatic usage, fine, but that's consistent. Don't get the idea that you can change for the better. God has to start over and create a new heart in you. And that concept is consistent in the Old Testament and the New. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately or incurably wicked. Who can know it? By the way, you can't know that except through the Revelation. One of the toughest concepts as you get into a biblical study, one of the toughest things is the the doctrine they call the depravity of man. The whole idea that we're really sinners, incurably sinful. We love to cling to the idea that, well, there's some good in everybody, and all we need to do is sort of get rid of the little bit of bad that's in us. Wrong. That's not God's view. God's much more articulate about the whole project than that. 
Now, who can know it? Verse 9 asks, verse 10 answers, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the conscience, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Boy, I sure don't want that. I don't want the fruit of my doings. I don't want God's justice, because his word has shown me how desperately wicked I am. And I praise God that his mercies are fresh every morning and that he has provided for a clean heart, a whole new creature within me through Jesus Christ and the working of his Holy Spirit. Now, verse 11 is a much criticized verse, but I don't think we should belabor the idiom. As the partridge sitteth on eggs and hatcheth them not, so he that getteth riches and not by right shall leave them in the midst of his days and at the end uh, and at his end be a fool. Now, people who are really up on partridges say the partridges don't sit on eggs they didn't, you know, lay. Well, the partridge can be used here generically, and the idea becomes clear as to what he's saying. I'm not going to get into big theological discussions about partridges in the Middle East, okay? But uh, basically, uh, just like you're sitting on eggs and hatches them not, so he that getteth riches not by right shall leave them in the midst of his days, and, and, and his end shall be a fool. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel. Love that word. O Lord, the hope of Israel. What a remarkable phrase for Jeremiah to use in the middle of this prophecy of doom for his people. O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they who depart from me shall be written in the earth. And by the way, more precisely, written in the dust. I'm coming back to that because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Very interesting phrase, written in the dust. That's in contrast to being written in the book of life. You see, those who don't depart, you know, that don't repent, are going to be written in the dust, in contrast to be written in the book of life. Where can you find the book of life? Exodus 32, 32, Luke 10, 20. Revelation 20, verse 12, and Revelation 21, 27. Common term for all of us. I don't want to take the time to go chase those down. Those of you that want to can. Book of Life, written in the dust. But let me tell you something that blows me away. I love, to, I love these things because they demonstrate the authorship of these 66 books. If we took the time to go into John 8, you all remember the story about the woman taken in adultery? They're trying to trick Jesus Christ. So the Pharisees have managed to take this woman in adultery. A fascinating psalm, I mean, a fascinating uh, uh, chapter of John, because I really would like to know how a woman did that all by herself. See, I always thought it took two. And the guy's not there. The woman is. But that's an incidental issue, I think. And, of course, the, the, the law required her to be stoned. You all know the story. And so they're trying to trap him because, you know, he, he has to obey the law of Moses, and yet this will make him unpopular, you know. And what does the Lord do? As they're moaning, he doesn't say a word. He writes in the dust on the ground. And as people look over his shoulder, he writes the sin, the secret sin of each. And they, of course, he says, I'll let the one that's without sin among you write the first stone. And then as they get ready to step up to, the, up to bat, he He's riding in the dust, and they realize he knows what he's talking about, and they drop the stone and split. And by the time he's through riding in the dust, there's no one left. Woman, where are your accusers? Riding in the dust. So I've actually heard people preach the purpose of that psalm was to prove that he could read and write. 
Can you imagine that? I know. I, 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 in my early days in a denominational church that'll go nameless, I actually heard that that well. You don't have to take a story literally. The main it was included primarily to show that he had an incredible, incredible lack of grasp as to who the guy was. But how interesting it is that he's writing in the dust. And in my Bible by John eight, I've ma made reference to Jeremiah seventeen uh, thirteen. And it's interesting that Jesus in Psalm 22 speaks of being brought down to the dust of death. It's being your sin, your wages of sin is death. You're written in the dust. The dust is synonymous with death, the death, the wages of sin. Why am I going through this? Because I think it's fast. Every time I read Genesis 3 and I find that God declares war on Satan, in Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between thee and, thy, and the woman and thy seed and her seed, the famous prophecy that starts the messianic chain of references. He pronounces a curse on the creation, thorns and thistles out of the ground, right? On man, because he's gonna have to, it's going to be by his sweat and toil that he's going to provide for himself. What is the curse of the serpent? He's going to eat dust, death, the wages of sin. Interesting how consistently idioms are used. There's going to be even a more dramatic one in chapter 18, so let's hasten on our way here. And I don't want to take too much time for these things. I just want to, get, and I'm not making an issue of dust and so forth. The, 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 to me, the thing that's relevant is to recognize the intricacy, the integrity of design. This book, these 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years, were designed, and they had their designer outside the time domain. And he integrated this message in advance before it happened so that we would recognize its source. And its source is not terrestrial. O Lord, the hope of Israel, verse 13, all who forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they who depart from me shall be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. They are written in the dust because they have forsaken the fountain of living waters. See the contrast? Heal me, O Lord and I shall be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for thou art my praise. Wow. Behold, they say unto me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hastened from being a shepherd to follow thee, neither have I desi desired the woeful day thou knowest, that which came out of my lips was right before thee. Be not a terror unto me, thou art my hope in the day of evil. Let them be confounded that persecute me, let, and, but let not me be confounded. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of evil and destroy them with double destruction. Again, that word Mishnah, with the double, the, the complete, the proportion, uh, not, not, not shortchanged. Don't shortchange their destruction. Okay. Notice that these pronouncements of doom are always ethically conditioned. Ethically conditioned. Verse 19, Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of people, uh, the children of the people, by which the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, ye kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter in by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourselves, and bear no burden in, on the Sabbath day, nor bring it by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers." 
This may strike you strange because it wasn't but a few chapters ago, Jeremiah is climbing on their case because they're obeying the, the literal law but without their heart, right? You say, gee, it sounds like it's contradictory. No, he's just reminding them of the Sabbath day for some very specific Jewish reasons. The Sabbath was a sign twofold. It was in the Decalogue. It's emphasized in the Ten Commandments. And it, uh, it, the Sabbath day emphasizes two relationships with God. One, the Creator. The Sabbath day commemorates the seventh day in which God rested. It speaks of His being the source of all creation. It also speaks, because of its placement in the Decalogue and so forth, as the sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant between Israel and, and, and the Creator was that they too would observe the seventh day as a day of rest just as the Creator rested on the seventh day. That idea is engraved in Genesis and, and engraved on the stone in, Je in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. So Jeremiah here is pointing to that, which is in effect a, um, a metonym. That is, it's, it's the general for the specific. He's saying he's calling them to an acknowledgement of their Creator and their covenant relationship. He says, uh, you know, uh, uh, bear no burden on the Sabbath day and bring it by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do any work. But hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they obeyed not, neither inclined their ear, but made their neck stiff, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. And it shall come to pass, if ye diligently hearken unto me, saith the Lord, to bring in no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work in it. Then shall there enter into the gates of the city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes and the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the uh, places about Jerusalem and from the land of Benjamin, from Arabah and from the mountains and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, meal offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise into the house of the Lord. When will that happen? In the millennium. But ye shall not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath day, and not to hear a burden, or bear a burden, even entering in at the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Then will I kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. So ends chapter 17. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.